Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China enjoys its role as a world leader and basks in international attention. President Xi Jinping likes to talk of building a global human community linked by a shared destiny. However, there are many situations in which China has become a somewhat unwelcome actor on the world stage. Its wolf warrior diplomacy seems antagonistic, and its strident nationalism alarms its neighbors, especially Japan. So why is there such a sharp contrast between the way China sees its role in the world and the way it's perceived by other countries? Well, this week's podcast guest is very well placed to address such questions. Charles Parton is a former British diplomat who specialised in China. He's a fellow at the Council on Geostrategy and at the Royal United Services Institute and at the Mercator Institute for Chinese Studies. Charles, welcome to China in Context. Thank you. Now, I'd like to start by asking your impressions of the 20th Party Congress, which was recently held in Beijing. Later on, we'll turn to China's relations with Russia, and the United States. I read a piece in which you explained that the party congress is as much about the CCP looking inwards at itself as it is about the party looking outwards at its governance. And you said that the event seeks to boost CCP morale, strengthen the members' resolve for the struggle ahead, and remind officials of the need for discipline. Were those goals achieved at this year's congress? I think these goals are always achieved on every Congress. But, I mean, if one looks at, 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 at the, what the Party Congress was, is about, I, I sort of characterise it really under, under the sort of initials of the four Ps, personnel, philosophy, the party itself, and, and policy going, going into the future. And I don't think anything, anything was desperately surprising. Members of the Central Committee itself, the 205 full members, the voting members, you could tell who those were going to be almost all of them before the Congress, because that's basically relies on, on which particular posts they were in. And Xi Jinping had put all his people in pretty much all those posts. So we ended up with a very seest, if that's not a very ugly uh, adjective, uh, outlook. And again, I think that um, there is now only one faction in China, uh, that is the C faction. And the elders who in the past have had some influence on policy have long lost that. They're getting old. They're 10 years older than when she first started out. So from person personnel pol policy point of view, are pretty much the same. I think philosophy ideology really does need emphasizing. It, it's, it takes up about a third of the report. Xi Jinping has put forward this 21st century Marxism, his, his own thought. Um, and so that, that's very important. As for the party itself, you see an awful lot about strengthening the party itself, within itself, the membership, and the, the need for political loyalty above expertise was re-emphasised. But also the party looking outwards in, in terms of um, within Chinese society, strengthening itself in other organisations, which Xi has been doing for the last 10 years, but again, a call for it to be pushed forward even, even more. Can you share your observations about the six men who've been invited to join Xi Jinping on the Standing Committee of the Politburo? That's the top leadership body in China. They were all expected to be there. Certainly, um, 
I kicked myself that I thought Wang Huning was going to go because I think that there may be others who can do the ideology uh, as he's done for the last um, years, both for, for Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping. So that was the only slightly unexpected retention, but I really did think that we were going to see a very seest uh, lineup. And indeed we have. These are people that Xi Jinping knows and trusts. And again, that, that's reflected also in the 24 members of, of, of the Politburo. What we haven't seen is a successor. So he's here at least for five years and possibly longer. And if there's one sentence in the, his report to the Congress that made me smile, and I can tell you there's not a lot to smile about in these reports, it was really one towards the end where he said that it is of critical importance to the party's future that we, are, that we have qualified successors to carry forward our course. Uh, well, yes, indeed it is, Mr. Xi Jinping. So who is yours? He followed that up incidentally with a sentence about the critical importance of having women in leadership positions too. Uh, and there are very few. Now, after the Congress, Xi Jinping took the members of the Standing Committee to Yen'an. Can you explain to our listeners why Yen'an is particularly significant? Yen'an is, of course, where the Long March ended in October 1935, and the CCP stayed there for, for many years until ultimately it conquered the country. Yen'an is a, is a holy site, Shangdi, uh, and it's the cradle of, of the CCP. So, you know, Xi Jinping is harking back to the past and using um, the lessons of the past to send a message to the present. So, you know, there are themes of the self-reliance and hard work that, that the party put in in Yen'an in those days. And nobody in the Communist Party will have forgotten the 1945 rectification campaign, which really established Mao Zedong as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party and established his thought as the guiding ideology. So, you know, and, and then you think back to the sort of parallels of the, of, of the challenges that the party faced in 1935 until, until the mid-40s, when it was really very much on the, on the back foot. Uh, and Xi Jinping is saying, look at all those travails and challenges, and they managed to get through and found the PRC. We're facing a turbulent world and some domestic challenges, but we should push through as well. So it's a strong message to, to people and party. Let's talk about Russia, because after the Congress, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, spoke with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, to brief him on the event. And I've read the uh, English language uh, readout of the conversation supplied by the Chinese government. Interestingly, there was no mention of Ukraine, but Wang Yi did say, China will firmly support the Russian side under the leadership of President Putin to unite and lead the Russian people to overcome difficulties, eliminate disturbances, realize strategic development goals and further establish Russia's status as a great power. What did you make of that? Well, um, yes, first of all, Wang Yi, I mean, he's 69 and one might have expected him to, to have been pensioned off. But uh, the fact that he's been re retained and given how aggressive he's been in the past, I think, speaks for the nature of, of how we're going to see diplomacy in the next few years, i.e. fairly aggressive. In, in some ways, what, what Wang Yi says is quite surprising because China has benefited from the way the world has been and Russia is a disruptor. And that's not been especially good. But I, I think it all comes back in many ways uh, to the United States and 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 um, the struggle that China sees, the Communist Party sees it, it, it has with the United States. So when I look at Russia-China relations, and you think back to the 4th of February communicate, 
just before the Olympic Games, which some people described as a love-in between Russia and China. I don't think it was. I think it was a hate-in between China and the US. So your enemy is my friend, in a sense. The, the enemy of the United States is my friend. Let, let's, let's work together because we've got similarities in terms of our authoritarianism and the way the world is, is set up. Uh, I mean, more broadly on, on, on sort of China's view of Russia, I think they must be a little bit disappointed. I, I'm sure they were at the very highest level anyway, told of the invasion uh, and probably thought, well, it's going to happen quickly. It'll succeed quickly. And that's not bad for China. We, we, we'll, we'll be fine with the things that matter to us, like energy and grain and other things. But now the situation's changed. And, and I think the biggest fear that China must have is what if Putin loses? What if Russia democratizes or, or, or because its natural bent is, is towards the West. I mean, you don't get Russians buying flats or educating their children or, or whatever, mooring their super yachts in China. You know, that and I'd add in the effect of, of, of sanctions. I mean, China must be looking very closely at those sanctions and seeing how that might apply to them in the future. So, yeah, on the one hand, yeah, they may be getting cheaper oil and gas, etc. And Russia will be on the back foot in its relations with China. So things like, you know, they might be less awkward over important questions like the Arctic. But on the other hand, what China's support for Russia, and it is support, is not helping China in terms of its relations with, with Europe and the rest of the world either, and its reputation there. So very much a mixed bag, but I don't think we should expect anything else other than the Communist Party to keep aligning itself with Russia just because it doesn't like the United States very much. Well, on the subject of the United States, there was a gala dinner in Washington to celebrate China after the Congress, hosted by the National Committee on the United States-China Relations. And to my surprise, Xi Jinping himself sent a letter to that organization. I'll read a bit. It says, China stands ready to work with the United States to find the right way to get along in the new era. However, there was a, a statement from the US Department of Defense very shortly afterwards uh, given to the media uh, in which it stated that the most comprehensive and serious challenge to US national security is China's coercive and increasingly aggressive endeavor to refashion the Indo-Pacific region and the international system to suit its interests and authoritarian preferences. So what's your perspective on China-US relations, Charles? If you look at it from the point of view of, of the Chinese Communist Party and its second centennial goal, it is to knock America off its number one place and, and reorder the world. Uh, if you look at it from the American point of view, it's not to allow that. And you know, from visits that I've made recently to Washington, it's very clear that there's bipartisan agreement there on um, way of, of dealing with China. Uh, and it's fairly fierce. I, I would say that, you know, looking back again from the Chinese Communist Party point of view, its foreign policy in a broader sense is very, very much seen through this lens of relations with, with America. And everyone keeps talking about the United Front and the United Front strategy. Um, I think it's important to, to concentrate on that strategy because it's fundamental to the way China deals both domestically and globally. And so, you know, the United Front strategy says you identify the main enemy, which in foreign affairs is is the US, and you move others from the either a hostile position to China or a neutral position or a friendly position, and you move them down that, that spectrum towards the friendly side. We've been seeing China concentrate on, on, on the smaller countries, uh, let's say in the Pacific Island nations. They all have a vote in the UN. 
uh, that, that's, that's important. So you erode and crumble away uh, support for the main enemy. And that's what, that's what it's doing. But the US is indeed fighting back. I mean, this recent rules or laws on, on semiconductors and the export of IP and equipment and everything else, this is a very, I mean, people have described it as kneecapping, but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's actually just cutting off the legs at the knee. And whereas some in Washington say, but this is to stop the PLA development, et cetera, the, the, the military, Chinese military development, I think everybody knows that it's more than that. And if you have a doctrine of military civil fusion, which China does, and increasingly the edges or the boundaries between what's military technology and civilian technology are eroding, I think there's no doubt that this is um, a very hostile act from the United States, uh, and this is just a big milestone on, on the road to decoupling. Where, of course, there are many limits. I mean, the dependencies are just so great, so interwoven. And, and science and technology is the main element in this. It's the, it's the, it's the battlefront, as it were. Uh, Taiwan, perhaps, is, 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 is the second because of its crucial role in what China sees as, as its security, but also what America sees in terms of its power in the West Pacific. So, yeah, it's, it's not going to be a happy relationship, I don't think. It's going to be a tense relationship for the foreseeable future. Well, thank you, Charles, for really bringing that complex subject to life for us. I found your answers most revealing. That was Charles Parton, an Associate Fellow at the Council on Geostrategy. He's also a Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and at the Mercator Institute for Chinese Studies. I'm Duncan Bartlett, a Research Associate at the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.